0: Good evening. This year will be Leilu in Ishmael Torah, Mercedes, Ruvin ben Yudit Silverman, Ruvin ben Yudit, also LaAvdi, LaAtzlahat Eliyahu Kalman ben Avraham, also Fosef Brakenzifer, Ariel Apianpo bat Moriah, LaAtzlahat Shiduch Chovi Yosua ben Bela and Rivka bat Michel, and Refuah Rav Zechariah Shimon ben Zirel Hakohen. And also the Refuat Yosef Ben Mazal. This was Rabbi Wallenstein, if you didn't recognize. That he's been uh, not feeling good for two months, I heard. Mm-hmm. Today I only found out.
1: No, so he's
0: having a surgery?
1: He's
0: going to be fine. Tov. Uh, also, it's the Nishmat. This coming Shabbat is the outside of the children of Sassoon family. That were burning Aleph Ben Isan on Shabbat. The day of the Mishkan, the Ptira of Nadam, Nadav and Aviu, Ez Hashem Sebekrovaya Kadesh. So it's the
1: Yorkshire.
0: Everybody now is uh, very upset the last week. One terror attack after the other. There was one in Beersheba, then one in Chedera. Today another one in Bnei Brak. All the years of Rav Chaim Kanievsky was alive in Dnebrak. He said nothing will happen in Dnebrak as long as he was alive. The minute he passed, the Shiva finished. You know, the, the Neshama is still in the world for the seven days after. And look what happened today. Probably the first terror attack in Bnei Brak ever. I don't remember a terror attack in Bnei Brak. That's a very big red light. In the city of Torah, to have such an attack, that's not a good sign at all. I meaning, like, that Hashem's anger towards our nation is escalating. Everybody is busy cursing these Arabs, terrorists, for screaming what to do, what not to do. I just want to remind all of you. That the decision who's going to live and who's going to die is Hashem's decision on Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah Hashem declares who's going to live and who's going to die this year. The question is, if he's going to die with an Arab shooting him, or he falls from a terrace, or he hits by a car, or he gets a heart attack, does it really make a difference? The answer is, it makes a difference because we get angry when the Arabs are killing us, we are fuming. If he would fall, if five people would crash in a car accident, we'll be upset, but not angry. Now we are upset and angry. Why we are angry? Because we don't have emuna. None of us. Even big rabbis don't have a Not enough, the way they should be. Someone that has emuna in Hashem, he knows that somebody that's supposed to die is Hashem's decision. How is he going to kill them? Hashem decides. He can send a lion to eat them, and he can send an Arab to eat them. Either way, it's the same thing. He's a wild beast, and that's a wild beast. Ishmael pere adam, that's it. So when a lion eats a person, you feel bad for the person, but you're not angry at anyone. you just said, Why? Someone died, you said. Didn't do tshuva or did tshuva, but he died. You said when people die. How did he die? It's not so relevant. In case you wonder, you know, there are four ways of execution by Hashem. Stoning, burning, choking, and sword. So Today you don't have the Sanhedrin, so we don't have the authentic, original form of execution, but we have similar ones. If someone needs to choke, He can either choke from gas or drown. And that's what happened this week. Two babies drowned. One drowned in a pool. And one drowned in a bucket with paint. Yes, there was a big bucket of paint. You know how the Arabs paint the house. He left the, the bucket open, not covered. And there was paint almost all the way to the top. It was about two feet from the ground. And the poor baby came and he played with the paint and fell inside and drowned like this. Such a tragedy. So what are we going to say that the Arab murdered him?
1: It was decided on Rosh
0: Hashanah. If Hashem wanted his baby to live, he would live. If he wanted him to die, he would die. That's it. We can look for guilty people. We can we can blame the parents for negligence. Mm. We can arrest the Arab for negligence. All of that, it's nature. Nature is what we see and what we understand. But a kosher Jew has to see beyond nature. That's mandatory. It's not uh, such high level. Don't think that I'm talking to you in the level of somebody you know, like you know to be uh, some holy person, it's a mandatory, from first grade. From first grade, kids already have to know whatever happened is Hashem's decision. Of course, when we see Arabs in Israel, we have to be extra careful, because there's always a chance he's going to pull a gun at you. Of course, if you go to bad neighborhoods here in America, when you know there's a lot of crime there, you have to be extra careful. And even if, you, if nothing happened to you, you're actually wasting your merits because Hashem has to do a miracle to save you when you go into a dangerous area or a war zone and all these things, it takes away your merits. So we do not want to put ourselves in danger. But in, rea- in reality, the decision if you live or die is 100% Hashem, Hashem's decision. Now let's talk a little bit about nature, because we still have to do Ishtadlut. After we understand that the final switch is Hashem. Shut it, please. So, we, we, after we understand that in the end it's all Hashem's decision, now we have to see what we can do as far as Ishtadlut. Because like, you know, Hashem's decide how much you're going to make, it's still going to work. Hashem decide, you know, if you be healthy or not, but you still have to do everything you can to stay healthy, right? You don't want to start eating poison and walk without a shirt Mm. in a freezing uh, 20 below zero, because then you die. Mm. You kill yourself. So you can kill yourself. Even though Hashem's decision was positive about you, you can actually turn it into negative with your stupidity and bad choices. So now what do we do? The Arabs in Israel laughing in our face and they feel that they own everything. There's nothing we can do. They know we are cowards. They know that half of our nation are lefty traders. They say it in interviews you encouraging us to increase the terror. They say it loud and clear. Loud and clear. When we see that half of the Israelis are pro-Palestinian, pro-murderers, pro-all the evil, Why should we stay home? You're encouraging us to come and attack. You're supporting us. So we come and we kill you. That's what they say. So the blood of everyone who dies, it's on the hand of this stupid government who joined together with the Muslim brother who declared that they want to destroy all Jews. They formed a partnership with them and now they're killing us. And there's nothing they can do. Because in a normal government, right now, there should have been thousands of arrests. And you should torture them to such a way that they will think a million times before they go on the street and begin to shoot at people. You would take away their citizenship, you would close their masks, you you would throw out people from the country to Lebanon, you cannot ever come back here. You would close their businesses, you would make it hell for them. But there's nothing done, nothing. Now one tiny thing is done. Come, continue to kill us. That's, what, that's the government you have. When I told you that the real enemies of Israel are the lefties, not everyone agree with me. I hope now you understand. 30 years ago, Rabbi Meir Alava Shalom, he said that uh, you can agree with me or you can disagree with me. But in 20, 30 years from now, it's talking about our days, He was murdered here in Manhattan, in Midtown. Before he was murdered, he made a a statement. You can agree with what I say, or you cannot agree with what I say. But in 30 years, when the Arabs will be a third of the population in Israel, and there are going to be bloodsheds in the streets of Israel, all of you will be Kahana. He was right about one thing, that now it's bloodsheds everywhere. He was wrong about one thing, that these lefties, no matter how many Jews will die, instead of regret and say we made a mistake in our ideology, they become more traders. More. The more more we get killed, the more they support our killers. Similar to a woman that lives with an abusive man, there is a psychological uh, phenomenon that the more he beats her up, the more she runs into his hands that he should beat her up even more. (laughs) What's the name of it? There's a name for it. There's a name for it in English, in psychology. (inaudible) Huh? (inaudible) (inaudible) Stockholm (inaudible) syndrome, that's what it is. Or that the the kidnapped identified with his kidnapper. All kinds of strange things. Wake-up call is only to normal people, people that eat Shratim, people that are traders, people that are Erev What kind of wake-up call? They care about anything. So, I tell you the truth, when I heard that someone is shooting uh, in Bnei Brak, first reaction that I had, I was very worried, very afraid that it's not a secular, anti-religion Jew shooting Haredim in Bnei Brak. This first thing came to my mind, but then I started to think, the timing that the Arabs now attacked twice already before, it's probably an Arab. But if there would not be two attacks in the last week, I would be almost convinced that it's one of those secular Jews that would shoot at Haredim, at ultra-orthodox people. In my opinion, it's just a matter of time until it will start happening. You think I'm exaggerating? Usually everything I said over the years, unfortunately, almost everything happened. The reason I'm worried about it, because I read their comments, and there's so much hatred, literally, 100%, like the Nazis to the Jews, before the Holocaust. The words are the same exact words. We should kill them, we should throw them, we should this to them, we should starve them. You know, all kinds of uh, terrible uh, racist comments. And you know, if you have a hundred people that make such hate, hateful comments, all you need is one of them to be a psychopath. they am going to take a machine gun and start shooting at everyone, especially if his life is bitter. Yeah, we have tons of crazy people out there. So the brainwash that the lefty media does to all these secular aiders is so massive and so constant, that it's just a, matter of, it's a miracle it didn't happen yet words of hate create violence and sometimes extreme violence as we see what do you think makes these Arabs take machine guns and start shooting people in the street what do you think trigger them they listen on YouTube to one of the speeches of one of the imams to kill the Jews you go to heaven all the nonsense that they sell to them their life is anyway not uh, as they expect it to be. They have nothing to lose. Plus, they get a salary from the Palestinian territory government for life. They actually admire all the murderers. By us, we despite murderers. By the Arabs, they admire murderers. That's the difference between people who follow God for real and people that pretend to follow God. Someone that follows God will never go and shoot people on the street. Even in the days of Sanhedrin, that the Torah said to execute Mechalelei Shabbat and gays and murderers, there's a list of people that deserve that penalty, right? You, do, you, you wouldn't be able to walk in the street and just kill them. You would have to bring two witnesses to Sanhedrin, and they have to investigate the witnesses. And the Gemara say that a cruel Sanhedrin executed a person once in 70 years. Meaning it never happened, basically. <laughs> Three generations, not one execution. So there was no execution. One reason, there was barely any gays. Definitely not only the open. There's not one gay in the world in the open. Not by the Jews and not by the non-Jews. If there was anyone like that, they would make sure to hide it in the most secure way. So if no one acts with his mental disease on the open, no one would be able to execute it. Okay. So that's one reason. If someone wanted to break Shabbat, no one had the guts to break Shabbat on the street. Even in Israel, my father told me 75 years ago, seven years ago, when the first kids started to be Mechal Shabbat, they walked for 40 minutes into the, to the orchards, of, of Tel Aviv, there used to be trees, orange trees, far away from the community, to smoke and to come back. Meaning they would walk almost two hours to, to smoke a cigarette, Why? Right? No one would dare to smoke in public because everyone was religious and traditional. So if it was seven years like this, in the time of the Gmaran, in the time of Sanedrin, no one would dare to light a cigarette, or to create fire, or to do anything like that. That's one of the reasons why there was no execution. But even when they finally caught someone and they brought him to Bedin, the Gemara said that the judges did everything they could to find contradiction between the witnesses. And based on that contradiction, even though it was totally not relevant to the case, like oh you saw him breaking Shabbat, yeah, where was it? Under the pomegranate tr- uh, tree. Oh, yeah? Well, how big were the pomegranates? One say well, about a pound each and one say half a pound. So, contradiction. So what contradiction? What does it have to do with the case? What do you think, I paid attention to the pomegranate? You just say different than the other witness. We are forced to send the defendant, we have to send him free. Why? not worry. Hashem watches everything. He knows what he deserves. If he want to kill him, he'll find a way to kill him. If he keeps him alive, it's on him. We follow the rules. We have a dry rule. Like my friend, the judge in San Diego, he once told me, many times a criminal comes to my courtroom, and if it was up to me, I would give him life in prison. I would make sure he doesn't see a day of light. But the law only allowed me to give him up to four years. So I give him the maximum. Why? Because while I'm actually judging him on one claim, I discover through the trial that he commits another dozen of other crimes: violence, brutal, abuse to his wife, to his children, all kinds of horrible things that he does, which each one of them is supposed to be as another punishment. So when I see such a monster, obviously it's good for the world that somebody like this will now walk on the street. It's dangerous for society. But what can I do? I have to follow the the rule, the the law. The law says maximum four years. Between one to four years. I give him four. It was up to me, I give him 40. But I can't do what I want. Same thing in Sanhedrin. If if they wanted to execute someone just because it was a despicable human being, they can't do that. They have to follow the dry rules. There's contradiction, you let them go. Leave them to Hashem. <laughs> I want to ex- <coughs> explain to you why some of these things that are happening today in the world are happening. Let me read it to you and you will understand. So... It's written in uh, Proverbs. It's written, "Ose nivchar Someone that does fair trial, justice and uh, honest justice, right? Din tzadek is greater in the eyes of Hashem than sacrifices. You know, when we go and say in Bet HaMikdash and we sacrifice, a fair Dayan, a judge, someone who is fair in a judgment, is greater than someone who brings sacrifices to the Holy Temple. Let me give you a literal translation. Mi someone that is honest, and despite the lie, and is never is never going to accept the lie, will never compromise. Is better than someone that sacrifices to Hashem every day, not just once in a while, every day. And is very special in his avodat Hashem. We have another verse: Shiftu Yatom, rivu Almana. Make justice for the orphans and for the widow. If you need to fight for the widow, (coughs) fight for her. Meaning, don't be cold and indifferent. You cannot see lack of justice in front of your eyes and move on with your life like nothing happened. If you do that, you are wicked. It shows that you're you're not a good human being when you see someone torturing a widow or an orphan which are people that needs defense they are as it is miserable as it is they have no no husband or no father to support them as it is probably it's hard for them financially and they don't have the strength to fight someone evil and you see something like this doesn't bother you that means you yourself are not a righteous person If you see Avel, what's the right word for Avel? Injustice, Injustice, maybe injustice. If you see Avel, right? Avla, you have to fight. You cannot say, what can I do? This is the way Hashem wanted it. You cannot talk like that. That's not how Hashem wanted it. Hashem made you watch it for you to get up and do something. Today, the world is very forgiving to murderers. Back in time, a murderer everywhere in the world was executed. It was un- obvious. Slowly, slowly, throughout the generation, there are more and more lefty liberals that all of a sudden decided that it's humane to worry about the rights of murderers who make other people destroyed and destroy their life. So they decided that between the murderer and his victim it's more fair to fight for the murderers, not for their victims. So if there is a murderer who jeopardizes society, instead of protecting society, we have to go and defend the murderer. Why is it? I explained it yesterday in my lecture in Queens. Why people always choose the opposite of what Hashem says that it's right? They always make the opposite decision. One of the main reasons is they eat non-kosher food and shratim and worms and pork and shrimps and all the other dirt which contaminate the mind. The sechel, the intelligence and the wisdom of the human being is corrupted. Why? Because the blood that goes into the brain goes with all the with the dirt in it, spiritual dirt. When you eat kosher, the the, the, the body has seven mechanisms of filtering the blood. When you eat the blood, some of the some of the blood some of when you eat the food, some of it right away goes to the waste to the bathroom. Then. The second kind of filtering is go, some of the dirt goes through the urine, and then from the sweat that 's another filter from the sweat, and then another filter means from the hair and from the nails, which you cut and throw because it 's garbage, so that's already some of the spiritual dirt that exists in a food goes out just keep filtering the body keeps filtering until. Then, then, after the, the, the air and the, and the nails, the it goes into the liver. And the liver filters the blood even more. So that's the fifth filter. And after that, the spleen. Splint. Splint. splint, sorry, spleen. And after the spleen, into the heart. And that's the final filter, the heart. And after the heart, it goes right into the brain where the soul is. So the brain receives pure blood, spiritual blood. There's a verse in the Torah. Don't eat the blood of the animals because the blood is the nefesh. spirit. last week. Last week. Uh, well, last week. So, so once you purify, you purify your blood by going through the laws of, of the Creator of the world, Then your soul receives pure blood. When the soul receives pure blood, immediately you see what's right and what's wrong. What Hashem loves, what He hates. When you eat ma'achalot asurot, you're going to have a problem in your system. So let's see what the world has become. First, the world is very forgiving to murderers. More and more... They lower the punishment. They claim today we are more humanic than before. But the reason is why we are able to tolerate murderers and corrupted society that becomes worse by the day is because we not only were not more humanic, the truth is that we became more corrupted. And it doesn't bother us to have mercy on dirty murderers, right? And Hashem, said, and Hashem said that the only way that entonement will be re- achieved is only after the blood of these murderers will be spilled to the ground, meaning that they're going to be buried. As long as they walk, there's never going to be justice. So for us, we have no problem. We have no problem to release O.J. Simpson and other murderers back to the street. We have no problem to defend them, and lawyers do everything they can to send them back on the street that they can kill more people. I just want you to know that every one of these Arabs that attack in all three attacks was already known to the Israeli police, already had a criminal record. And all three liberal lefty-trader judges, send them all back to the street, release them from jail, and had mercy on these monsters. In America, it wouldn't happen. They would be in Guantanamo for 50 years, each one of them. Do you know what it means if America would find out, the FBI would find out that you join ISIS? Even if you never committed any terror attack, just in your computer, They'll find out that you identified with ISIS and support them or send them donations or watch their videos, that will be the, the end of you. Right away, they target you as a terrorist. No rights, no lawyers, no nothing. You find yourself in torturing in Guantanamo for the rest of your life. This is America, democracy. But in Israel, not only they do nothing to them, they pay them money. To have more kids, that should be like the more murderers. Like in France, also stupid. Come to Paris, we'll give you money. Give a lot of birth. Every child will pay for everything. Why? That you can kill us faster. Same thing Germany. Germany has mercy on the terrorists. Germany is about to be destroyed. France had mercy on the terrorists. France is already destroyed. England had mercy on them. England is finished. Israel had mercy on them, Israel is finished. United States is on the border. They're not that dumb yet, but now with the Democrats and flooding the country with more and more of those murderers. Trump wanted to do the right thing, but the liberals, of course, will never let someone do the right thing. Why? (laughs) It's more important to defend criminals. Drug dealers from Mexico murderers from Syria, terrorists from all over the world. It's more important to worry about their rights than to worry about American citizens that are good people, or Israeli citizens that are good people. Why? Everything in the world became corrupted. And Hashem said, this is what it says, it says, La ki im Klomar, what does it mean? Until you spill the blood of the murderer, I will never forgive you, because he had never, you never had a permission to have mercy on him. Right? So even on abortions, there is a verse in the Torah: Shofch dam adam ba adam damo yishofch. Translation, someone that spills the blood of a human being inside a human being, meaning a baby, right? What what does it mean, human being inside of a human being? A baby will be executed, measure for measure. You're murdering babies in abortions, whether the mother did it, or the doctor, or anyone who assisted. Sometimes you have Israelis with the horrible sins that they commit with all kinds of non-Jewish women, It happens many times that they make them pregnant. And now they think it's like a button. You press a button, you make an abortion, and you finish. Big deal, you pay two, three thousand dollars. That's how they look at it. But it's not really a solution, because first of all, the goyim are not allowed to do an abortion. For them it's also a murder. Jews are not allowed to do it, it's murder for the Jews. So either way it's a murder. So what, do you th- what does the guy think? Okay, you know what? I'll let her decide. I won't push her to do an abortion because I don't want to be a murderer. But let Christina be a murderer. Anyway, I'm not going to marry her. So if she agreed to do an abortion or that's what she requests to do, immediately he gives her the money before she changed her mind. But by giving her the money, you became a part of the murder. It's true that when you murder with your own hands, and you murder indirectly, it's different punishment. If you murder with your own hands, it's execution. If you murder indirectly, Hashem has to execute you, not the bedin. So meaning, the doctor that murdered the baby is the actual murderer. The mother that agreed to let him do it, she is an indirect murderer, but she still deserves death penalty. Accessory. Accessory to the murder. And the guy that paid the money, without his money, the doctor wouldn't perform the murder. Is also He's yes. So you see. So now, I had a guy called me a few days ago. It happened to him. The woman didn't tell him she's pregnant because they broke up, and nine months later, he got a phone call from her. Congratulations! You have a, a, a baby girl. Problem number one, this guy, poor guy was so ignorant, doesn't know anything from his life. So he knows someone from Brooklyn who knows me. He, he asked me if he can call me. Okay, I spoke to him on the phone. Said, said how people have no idea what they do in their life, nothing. So he tells me the story now. This is a divorced Goya, oh, they have two kids. And he went and was in relationship with her. And he didn't know she's fine. and now she just surprised him and there's already a baby. Okay. So he said to me now, what is my obligations now, after I made that mistake? Do I have to block her and disappear? Do I have to support the baby? She, she tricked me like this, she did all these things, she didn't even tell me anything. I said, she didn't trick you, because even if you knew, you couldn't murder the baby. So it's not that it's going to make any difference. She just didn't tell you in the beginning. She can say for her defense, I didn't even know if the baby will be born, maybe it's going to be a miscarriage. I didn't know where you are. Okay. I wasn't sure if I want to tell you. There are millions of people in the world that have children somewhere and they don't even know. You know what? They meet, they commit a sin, they drunk. They don't even know how to find each other the next day. And all of a sudden, she finds out she pined in and she doesn't even know who the father is because she doesn't remember who she was. Yeah. Who she was with, yeah. Millions. And they come to Shamaim, they'll find out. They're going to have a very bad surprise. And sometimes it's for married women who cheat and go to clubs, get drunk. The world became Sodom a long time ago Sodom and Gomorrah. That's also, so this guy now is asking what should I do? So I told him you have an obligation to send money to raise that baby. The baby is not your baby. It's a goya. She, she can never be your daughter because the Torah says Jews that have relationship with non-Jews it's a serious sin and the kids that will be born will be not Jewish. Therefore, she's not your daughter but still have a civil obligation. You know, you have to be human. You brought a baby to the world you got to take care of their needs. Okay, no problem, I'll do that. What else? Can I convert the girl? I say, how are you going to convert her? The only way to convert her is that the mother will agree to convert and to become religious. This Goya will agree to be religious, plus you say she has two other kids. So she has to convert, and to convert the other two kids, and then to convert this girl. So it looks to me like too much of of a wishful thinking. No, so now he asked me, so what should I do? I said, one day, maybe the girl would see that she has a Jewish father, and maybe she would want to convert. But, you know, conversion is keeping the mitzvot. Yes, I understand. Okay, so if one day she will convert, then she will be my daughter? The answer is no. She will never be your daughter. Why? Now he was shocked already. Why? I brought her to the world. She will never be your daughter, because if you have a kid from a non-Jewish woman, the kid is not Jewish and is not yours. So, but now she will become Jewish. Why cannot she she be me? Mine. She she came from me. I say, because every convert, every goy that converted is like a baby that was just born. There's no connection to the biological parents. So he says, so I'm doomed from all directions. I say, Yes. (laughs) You know what was the last sentence in the a, in a conversation? Thank you, Rabbi, for telling me the truth as it is. Now at least I know where I'm standing. You know, other people would be afraid. Hey, no, well, you know, uh, but... Say the truth. We don't have permission to modify the Torah. Tell him the truth. So, Rabbi what, what's, the, what's the conclusion of all that? Let me read it to you. David Amelech entered his book, Teilim Psalms, 150 Mizmorim. Not all of them he wrote. Some of them were written by San Shlomo. Some of them by the children of Korach. Some of them, by, one of them, by Adam. Moshe Rabenu, Eiman, Moshe. There's a few, few authors. He was the majority, yes. The few authors to Teilim, but the first hundred and three chapters in Teilim are different than the ones after. Listen carefully. This is the words of the Gemara. The Gemara says, "Mea ve'shlosha Amar David. David says, "Kuf Gimel mizmorim." One hundred and three chapters he wrote in Teilim and did not praise Hashem. He did not say the word, Alleluia. There's no Alleluia in the first 103 chapters. Once, until he saw that the wicked people collapsing, getting what they deserve. ואז ברכי נפשי את השם, איתם וחטאים מן הארץ, ורשאים ברכי נפשי הללויה. My soul bless God, because there are no more sins in the world, and the sinners are all gone. They are all gone, they all died. Now I should praise God, הללויה. What's הללויה? Praise God. Allelu, it's praise, God, yeah. From here the Gemara say, what I've been telling you, Rav Victor Miller was saying it almost in every one of his speeches, the only way to elevate the name of Hashem is to see the destruction of the wicked people, not to give them candies, not to defend them, not to worry about their rights, and not to have any kind of mercy on them. Law? It's a law, yes. Automatically every human being have rights, meaning you are a suspect. Let's investigate. Witnesses will check, testimonies, whatever we can prove. Once it's no doubt, remember in the Torah there's no such a thing beyond reasonable doubt. That's a stupid law. Reasonable doubt, you know how many mistakes can be done with this statement? Beyond reasonable doubt, you know how many innocent people get executed here in this country? Or went to jail for thirty, forty years, and now with DNA, they release them and apologize to them, because the trial showed that they're very guilty. There was no, there was be, it was beyond reasonable doubt. The Torah said beyond any doubt, not beyond reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt is not enough. The Gemara brings a story. One rabbi said to his student, "You saw me, you saw me." doing something very suspicious, going to the room, and the goya came in, and this, what did you suspect me of? So the the, the student, he gave them a lot of examples how they should have judged him in a negative way. But the student all judged him to a positive way. We would never suspected you, Rabbi. And after he told them what he really did, he said, everything you gave me, you gave me uh, what's the, the benefits of the doubt, you were 100% right. I swear to you, that's exactly how it was. Even though it looked that I'm very, very guilty from the outside. I'll give you an example. Let's say a person has a horrible stomach virus right now. Call him in the highway. He needs to get to a bathroom within five minutes, otherwise I don't have to tell you what an accident will happen. And the only thing he see now is McDonald's in a, on the highway. Jersey, Terran Pike, uh, Garden State Parkway. And there's a gas station there. There's a lot of religious Jews filling gas. And they see this Hasid guy run, running into McDonald, Running! That makes it more suspicious. Why is he running? What does he think? We don't see his shtraymel or his beard and peos because he's going to run? We can miss him because he's running! Such a hypocrite, right? The people in the gas station, Hashem <laughs> irachem, such a double face. I'm going to take a picture of him. I'll find out where is he from. I don't recognize him from Borough Park, probably from a different place. We'll put it on my WhatsApp group if anyone recognizes this Rasha. The poor guy is a big Tzadik. The only bathroom he can run to is there. So now it looks very suspicious. Of course, it looks suspicious. But someone that has a status of a kosher human being, which was never convicted of doing things like eating treif meat in McDonald's ever in his life, if, you're, if people already testify 500 times against him that he eats in all kinds of non-kosher places, then you must suspect that he's doing it again. But if someone who knows that he buys glad kosher meat in a butcher shop and pay double and he, he makes sure what not to bring into his house and, you know, in Pesach is very careful with Hamet. you suspect him now that he buys burger, burger in McDonald's, out of your mind, why don't you try to think, why is he running, maybe he's sick, maybe something. So bottom line, sometimes it looks very, very suspicious. The Torah says it's not enough. It looks very suspicious, and it's not enough. You know, even in DNA you can make mistake. You can convict a person based on DNA, and it wasn't him, it was his brother. Yes. The DNA of the brothers are very, very similar. Yes. Two twins. Almost the same t- DNA. They, they make a, they, they, it happened in the past that they made mistake. Today... I don't know how they even convict people based on DNA because there's an Israeli company who found a way to forge DNA. So you cannot rely on it anymore. If somebody did it to someone because he wants to set him up, you're know, send someone to prison for the rest of his life based on DNA, according to the Torah, it's going to be a problem because it's not beyond reasonable doubt. It's, it's not beyond any doubt. It's maybe beyond reasonable doubt. The chance that someone would fake DNA and plant it in a scene is very unlikely to happen. Very rare. But it's still possible. But in America it's good enough because it's beyond reasonable doubt. There's no reasonable doubt to think that someone went and forged the DNA and planted it over there, even though it happened already a few times. But, you know, we don't go that far. But according to the Torah, you're not allowed to convict him. The chance exists? Exists. You cannot, you cannot convict him. can convict him. There's, well, he's going to go free. It's not our problem. It's Hashem's problem. If Hashem wants, let him kill him. If he let him go free, it's not on me. I follow the rules. Yes? I'm, I have a client who,
1: basically, his twin brother, Frank, and left the country and went to Canada. My client country and go to uh, Belgium, I and mean, he's in Belgium, he can't return, his job, his time, everything he left, um, because the DNA, the data of everything is the same, so the problem is, is that he can't prove that he didn't commit the crime. Because the, the,
0: the problem is that the law has to prove that he committed the crime, he doesn't have to prove that he did not commit the crime. The burden of proof is on the police and the court. I don't have to prove that I didn't murder someone. They have to prove that I did murder him. This is the way it has to be. Uh, Otherwise, every person in the world is a suspect in everything. So I tell you what. A good lawyer goes to court and says, you're right, that wasn't him, it was his brother. Everything that you have, it belongs to his brother. And his brother is out of the country. So he wants to run. A lot of innocent people win Because they have no faith in the justice system. Sometimes it's the smartest thing to do. I'll give you an example. If uh, in Israel they had... Uh, the same judge, the same court like here, meaning jury. In Israel, there's only judges. There's no jury. But let's say a Hasid from Bnei Brak is a suspect in uh, fraud. And they would nominate 12 secular anti-religious people to be his judge, jury. Does he have any chance to get out of it? Of course, he should run. Because you already know exactly what's going to happen. They hate religion so much that they're going to make sure to convict them no matter what. It's a little bit difficult to rely on miracles, you know. It's a little bit difficult. So anyway, Rabotai, so now we understand that there's no permission to have mercy on such people. There's no mercy. You know, I want to tell you a story. There is a famous university in America. They decided to, to investigate 100 millionaires. When this research was, it was probably more than 30 years ago, because I know about it 20 years ago. So it at least probably 30 years ago. The word millionaire had a substantial name. A millionaire—it's nothing. Everyone who owns a house here uh, that is falling apart in Flatbush. Is already more than a million dollars. So almost everyone here in Flatbush is a millionaire if he owns a house. Muncie, even Lakewood now. <laughs> Inflation. So the word millionaire—it's a problem. Also to be a billionaire—it's also difficult. There's a big difference between a million to a billion. So let's say that what they called a millionaire back then, meaning if a person has $1 million, everyone was impressed, today it's really like 10. The ratio. So you can call a millionaire, in my opinion today, someone that has $10 million and up. Less than that, he's not a millionaire, he's just a wealthy person, he's a rich person maybe. Or average, becoming an average, yes. With the prices of the cost of living today, you're right. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. The world is divided now, America, Israel, to 10-20% very rich people, and the rest are all low class. There's there's no more middle class. If you're a Jew and making in America $100,000 a year, you're poor, very poor. You cannot afford to send your kids to school. Yeah, you're very poor. You're going to need help from the government, otherwise you're not going to have enough to live. Uh, 30 years ago, if you made 100,000 dollars, you would count uh, wealthy men. Wow, I remember days how people used to break when they make 60, 70. So Today you cannot buy bread and bread and milk with this kind of salary, even go in. inflation. So they, they took in those days, I guess people that had a few million dollars each one of them. And they, what's the research? They attached to each one of them uh, a student, one student from the university, to follow the millionaire for one month. Right? When they brought the final results, they saw. That uh, 99 gave more or less the same calculation, I mean the same conclusion, they all wrote he fights his, his competition, spies on them, always is in a fight, constant fight about money every day, courts, lawsuits, except one. One out of the 100 millionaires was different than all the other 99. The student that followed that one reported that he's very calm, does not fight anyone, complement is competition, and they were very shocked. What? How can it be? We want to interview this man, bring him over. They brought him in and they asked him, how come you're like this? You're different than everyone else. He said, I follow my father's way. Right? My father was a supporter of wars with no mercy. He would fight everyone in his, in, of his uh, opponents. One time I went to a trip to Israel they took me to a yeshiva in Mir, in Jerusalem. I saw, thousands, I saw them thousands of students in a small place and very crowded. And only 20 managers, meaning staff, 20 people are in charge of thousands of students. How can it be? How can 20 people control 7,000 people? And I went to the boss over there, Rabbi Finkel. And I saw that he has a disease, Parkinson. You know, his handshaking and all that. I asked him, how do you manage in such a small place with such a small staff? And the Rosh Shiva here don't, don't feel so good. So he answered him, over here everyone is busy benefiting the other. Based on what the Torah said. So we, we are people, we're not animals. So we're all busy helping each other. That's why you don't need staff, and you don't need police here, and you don't need any, you know there's no problems here. So that day I decided also to be like that. As you can see, not only I did not become less rich, I actually became a lot bigger. I want to tell you, in our community there is a locksmith. Remember I told you the story? In Mo- he's in Monsi, and near Monsi, I think in Pasek, there is another tzaddik that helped him out. When he went into the business, he lent him a machine that duplicate keys. One time he had an accident, his van was shut off. He doesn't have a car, because he, he, he works on service. He told him, here, let me give you my van, I have an extra one for you. Use it as long as you need it. It's competition. He helped him, he lent him a machine that worth more than $10,000 for three months. Use it until you can afford to buy your own machine. When, uh, when, uh, the, uh, mini, when his van had an accident, he gave him a car to use. Do you think someone like that make less money or more? Of course, Hashem, why will Hashem take away his Parnassah? He's so proud of someone like this. If any, the chances to make more money are much greater than when you fight the whole world and try to ruin it for him and ruin because what goes around, what comes around goes around. Amar Rabbi El-Azar. Call Adam Every person that is a Kisap. Compliment the wicked, admire them, kiss up to the rich, to all kinds of secular wicked people. Even babies in their mother will curse him. That's metaphoric, of course. Meaning, look who is cursing you, even babies who don't know left and right yet. You already deserve to be cursed by them. As it's written in Proverbs 24, Someone that says to the wicked, You are righteous. And what is Leom? Leom is Ubar. Leom is baby. As it's written, Leom mi Leom ye Matz. About who? Yaakov and Esau. That's what Shem told Rivka. How did they call the babies Leom? Mazeleom. Le'om, it's like they say, Bank Le'umi. Have you ever heard it? Bank Le'umi in Israel? Le'umi means national. Le'om in English means nation. Two nations are in your stomach. They're going to be big enemies. Yaakov is Israel. Esau is Germany, the Nazis. And it's starting right now. The war between the Jews and the Nazis started right there. So, many times we don't pay attention. We kiss up to the wicked and we bring problems to ourselves. In the book, Shah Shuvah of Rabenu Yonah, chapter 3, Kuf Peitet, this is what it says, HaMeallel Rasha, someone who compliments the wicked, Ben Befana'v, uven shelo Befana'v, whether it's in front of him, whether he is not in front of him. Even though he does not agree with his wicked acts, he, does, he doesn't justify that he's a thief. He knows he's a robber, he knows he steals from people. He doesn't say, oh, what he does is right, it's allowed to steal, it's mitzvah to steal. He doesn't say that. But he compliment him that he says he's a good person. Ach Gevir, like they say in Israel. Who? Who is Achla Gever? The head of the Mafia. Believe me, I know him personally. He's a great guy. Great guy, shoot people and collect protection and break people's knees, Burning businesses that do not want to pay him uh, blackmail money. That's a great guy. Why is a great guy? Because he gives donations here and there. So everybody come, wow, chazak u baruch, Every thief that gives millions is uh, everybody look the other way. How many people look that this person is a criminal? Not that many. Why? We, we benefit from him. So I'm reading to you. He doesn't say what he does is correct. He's a good guy, he's a good person. A reza It's also a kisap, and that's what Hashem say about someone like that. Torah Who has a pity, an admiration, and mercy, and interest to protect the wicked and the murderers and the thieves? Who? only osvei Torah. Someone that is not connected to the Torah. Someone that is deep in the Torah is allergic to all these people. last thing he would want is to defend him or to help him in any possible way. So when you see someone runs to protect the wicked then you know he's not a real Ben Torah. May, you may think he is. We saw it. We saw a perfect example. When there was that event in Florida with the Christian missionary, you saw right away who spoke against it and who tried to defend it. And that's how you know who is righteous and who is wicked. And I don't care what's his title. And I don't care what kind of organization is standing in the head of them. And what kind of uh, admiration he gets from the public. We don't care about this by the way you protect the evil and the wicked and the idol worshiping and all the things that Hashem hates, that's an indication that you are Ozef Torah. Ozef Torah. Ozef Torah could be someone that learned 30 years in Yeshiva, became a Roshi Yeshiva, and now he barely learns. Barely learns. He has no time. He became uh, diplomatic, raising funds, meeting, people, does not have time to learn. He used to learn a lot. Now he has no time to open Gemara. Now he has no, no time to open any book. That's called Ozvei Torah. What happened to him after a while? The Torah that he learned when he was young gets mixed with the, all the nonsense that he gets right now without Torah. And it become a poison to him. That's why a lot of people who, who went out of yeshivot when they were young and went to the university in Manhattan, each one of them became the biggest criminals in the world. The, things, the heresy that comes out of their mouth is beyond words. Did you ever hear about a shul that considers himself orthodox, that teach daily the one that they call him rabbi? It's not even a clown. Even a clown he doesn't deserve to be. They call him a rabbi. He was kicked here from Brooklyn and went to London. So he teach them every day a book of an atheist infidel. That's what he teach, Firah. Literally, no jokes. Today we're going to learn this biggest koffer, some kind of a koffer who deny everything about Torah, about Hashem, that's what they learn. It's learning of learning, Shulchan Aruch, Musar, Gemara, something. Now something new. The movie of the week. They take a movie from Hollywood, Raided R, or worse, and they analyze the movie. That's what they do in a synagogue. The people that build that synagogue killing themselves now where they are. If they're in heaven, if they in hell, only Hashem knows. But one thing for sure, they killed themselves in Olam I met. That's where my money went to such a place. Such a disgrace. Unbelievable. So, Rabbotai, just by saying about a wicked person that is a Ben Adam Tov, you are considered immediately as an Ozef Torah. Right? Why is it? Why it's so severe? Why can't we be merciful to the wicked? Let's really understand the concept here. There's a lot of good people, religious people, that they are positive. They are, it's not their nature to criticize or to judge. You know how in America they love this word, don't be judgmental? But what can I do that the Torah force every Jew to be judgmental? And not just once in a lifetime or once a month. Every minute of your life you must be judgmental. What does it mean, judgmental? The Gemara says, if a person comes to your house, you don't know who he is. You have to look at him in two options. One is that Rabban Gamliel, the president of Am Israel, the holiest person in the world, Or, the exact opposite, a robber who came to kill you and rob you. Why? Here's a nice beard. Perot, hat. Back then there was a turban. Can I stay in your house for tonight? It's cold outside, I'm going to the next town. Will you allow me to sleep? Yes. Fadal, come in. What should I make you to eat? But, if you have a gun for protection, you have to be ready. That's the law. All of a sudden he's going to get up with a knife and try to rob you. Maybe it's a scam, oh, but he has a nice beard. Everyone had a beard back then in the time of the Gemara. Everyone had a turban, even the Goim. Why you have to wait with your knife or a gun and wait for him to, to make a move? Why you don't want him next to your children? You put him in a guest house outside and lock your house and be on alert, and today when you have cameras you check every five minutes that everything is okay. That's being judgmental, because that's required by common sense. You see someone with a thousand earrings and tattoos and, and, and mohawk, you know, is not, is not Shomer Shabbat, you cannot count him in a minyan. Ah, maybe he's doing tshuva, maybe. Maybe he became Shomer Shabbat, he didn't have time to remove all these stupid earrings. It's possible. But what are the odds? One to a thousand, one to a million? We don't go by such a rare possibility. We go by what our eyes see. You see someone behave like gay, like this. You cannot say, no, I don't believe gossip. You see how he behaves, and you know right away who he is. Enough with his stupidity. Don't be judgmental. Can't stand these people with their nonsense, modifying the Torah. Enough with this shtuyot. There's no mitzvah to be a fool. You must be judgmental. You're not allowed to go and speak lashon hara about people unless you have to warn them from this person. That's a different story. Just to enjoy, to spread lashon hara, not allowed. But for yourself, you come to a store. You see that the one that sells you the meat has a yamaka size of a quarter. You have to be super stupid to buy meat from him. Not stupid, super stupid. Because this little tiny yamaka shows that if he could, he would rather walk without a keeper. He has zero irat shamayim Why he still have yamaka? How is he going to sell kosher meat? He has to put something. You see by the way he dresses, you see by the way he behaves. That's not a Ben Torah, that's not a Talmid Chacham. Are you counting someone like this to feed you glad kosher meat? There was a case like this. I want to tell you, there was a case like this. There's one guy from Brooklyn. He went to learn in Switzerland. What's the name of that holy rabbi who passed three years ago in Switzerland? Kaplowitz? No, Kaplowitz. Hundred and five, couple of it. He was learning in his yeshiva, He's a big five. rabbi in Switzerland. Kapelman, Kapelman. Kapelman There's a big yeshiva there, Kapelman. So this guy went to there and learned it for a few years. Serious ben Torah. After a few years he came here to help his father. His father had a butcher shop here in Brooklyn somewhere. I don't know which one. In a the story, they didn't say obviously which one. There many butcher shops here. Once he started to help his father, which was also a religious man, not as strong as his son as Ben Torah and Yeshiva, once he started to help his father, he saw that his father is not Yeresh Amayim. And there's big problems over there with the way of the Shita and things that are questionable. But he saw that every rabbi who comes into the butcher shop immediately buy the meat and don't check and do not investigate how reliable is the place. And he realized that the only reason the people do not investigate is because they see him in a counter with his long beard. So one time, Rabbi Koppelman, one of his students told him, Your student that was here, one of the best students, is off the derech. Became secular, almost. You're not gonna believe. He put a small yamaka and shaved completely his beard. And he dressed like a secular guy. Not black like and white, like Hasidim, not nothing. Ma? This Talmud Chacham became like this? cannot be. I can't believe this. He called him. The Rosh Yeshiva called him. Let's call him Aaron. I'm just making up a name. Aaron! What do I hear? What do you hear, Rabbi? You're wearing jeans, small tiny jeans yamaka. You shaved your beer. Chas Shalom, you go off the derek, return immediately to Yeshiva. What happened to you there in Brooklyn? Rabbi, you have nothing to worry about. I am not off the derech even by a drop. If any, I'm more strict than what I was before. How can you tell me such a story? When a person remove a big yamaka to a small one, we know in what direction he is. If he change the religious clothes to non-religious clothes, we know where he's heading. So he said to him, Rabbi, let me tell you why I did it and tell me if I did it right or wrong. I saw that my father is cheating the customer with the quality of the meat, it's, not, it's questionable, the kashrut is not reliable. He brings things that are not reliable into the butcher shop. And everybody buys it, nobody asks questions. Why? Because they see me with my hat, with my beard, and they see I'm ben Torah, with my tzitziot, and the way I talk. They, they, according to the Torah, they're not allowed to suspect me. I have a good status. So I realized that because of me, people eat non-kosher meat. And to fight with my father is my father, you know, it's also a problem. So I decided to shave off my beard and put a tiny modern orthodox yamaka. And now, everybody asks 10 times, where is the meat from? Where you got it from? From which shrita? And many people walk in, they see me, and they walk out. Better. Like this, I don't have to fight with my father. (laughs) And at the same time, I'm not a trap to the people. So there are an exception to the rule. But we have to go... He told him, "Sharkoach, you did the right thing. What's better, that he's going to look extremely religious and hundreds of people will eat refot every day? What's better? Let me tell you how. When you have a modern person that comes, what do you think? If he buys from you to begin with, when he see how you dress and how you look, that means that's what he's looking for. <laughs> that's what he's looking for. It's either this or McDonald's. <laughs> I can't
1: tell his father but... his father also to go with his his father has to his father
0: Obviously, he tried. But apparently his father is not a ben Torah. You know how it is, when a person is not Yerat he allows himself a lot of leniency. That's, the, wa- That's the way the Satan is fooling people without Yerat People that are not really Bnei Torah, it's very easy to knock them down. Why? Because the Satan say this is how the Satan comes to the modern people don't be fooled by this ultra orthodox fanatic Hasidim they're too fanatic. everything by them is extra. they make your life torture don't be like them you be normal. there is a way to be religious without being so fanatic so Even though there is a little bit of a truth in this claim, because sometimes there are ultra ultra orthodox people who are extremely, more than necessary, are extreme. For instance, they cover all the walls of their houses with tinfoil on Pesach. It's no such, I don't want to say stupidity, but such a waste of time and money. Who cares about the wall now? What, you leak the walls now in Pesach? What are you covering with them That's yeah, yeah. a big eshtuyot. So somebody that sees this, know he says, oh, you know what? Well, okay, this is who I'm dealing with. Okay, no, So, yeah, in, in Passover, you see it the most. There is so many chumrot that people do, and in the end, they lose more than again. Rav Ovadia used to make a, a joke about it. He says, there are people mirov she'machmirim Nim translation. Machmir means extra strict. Chmar means hamor in Arabic. Khamur and Machmir, it's the same letters. Yeah, by the way, to be Machmir when it's really not necessary, it's dangerous. Tell you why. Because if your child grow up to think that that's the requirement. And then one day he goes to Yeshiva and he finds out that nobody does it. It was something that the father, his father made up. He make up his own Chumrot. Nobody, Biggest Amid HaChachamim laughed at it. Then he loses faith in his father to begin with, in everything he learned from him. How do I know this is true? How do I know this is true? They have to know when is mitzvah to be machmir and when is mitzvah to be mekel. Sometimes people throw $500 food into the garbage when is from the oraita and from the rabbanan. It's some waste. So they think they are extra righteous. They're going to get punished for that. Throwing $500 to the garbage, that's baltashkid the oraita. They come to be extra extreme and strict, more than Rabbanan require, more than rabbinical law, and in the end, they make a sin from the Torah. This is just an example. I have a lecture that I gave 10 years ago about Humrot. You should listen to it once. Because sometimes the big requirements to be extra strict, and sometimes it's stupidity to be extra strict. Some Humrot brings a disaster. Anyway, Rabotai, so, the the Shaaret Shuvah concludes, and this is what he says, the reason why we must be judgmental, the reason why we're not allowed to compliment any wicked person, any mechalel Shabbat, any idol worshiper, any thief, and can never say he's a good person, is because the public the public will see that an orthodox person respects such a rasha, such a wicked person and immediately they would listen and respect him also. And he will think, wow, look how everybody really everybody respects me. Look how all these rabbis with their beard coming to me. You're such a tzaddik. You're such a great person. Right? And uh, and, uh, you know, and, he uh, becomes more, you know, become more powerful. And not only that, the wicked person, when he sees the person who comes to him every Friday to his business to tell him to put fill in. And he gives him a check. And instead of telling him, why are you opening on Shabbat? Soon it's Shabbat in two hours, you don't want to go home and do Kiddush to your wife and children. He never tells him anything. He only tells him, you're tzaddik, you're great, especially if he gives him a check. What happened to that secular person? If there was any chance that one day he will become Shomer Shabbat, this chance is gone. Because when he see an orthodox person come to him with a black hat and a beard and tell him, you're great, you're a good person, Hashem loves you, you're a tzaddik, the chance that one day he will really become a tzaddik is destroyed. Here, it's right here. It's empty. Yeah. I don't know, Benji is sleeping today. No, but he wanted it. Okay. Anyway, so... Rabotai, okay. conclusion. People would think that if the rabbi compliment him so much, he's probably an important tzaddik, and then he's going to become more powerful, and he will make sure that he will never t- return from his evil way. Right? So this is what's written. Nehemar befechanef yashchit reeu. A mouth that is a kisap mouth will destroy his friend. When you compliment a wicked person and tell him how great he is, you are the reason why he will remain bad. You had a way to save him, but by giving him compliments, you destroyed him. Kat Chanefim, there are four groups that cannot accept Shekhinah. They cannot be at the presence of Hashem, Hashem cannot stand them. One of the four groups is Kat Chanefim, people that kiss up to the wicked, compliment the wicked, say on wicked people that they are good people, people that vote Democrats, they are the biggest kiss up, kiss up to the wicked, complimenting them. Katcha Nefim is one of four groups roim and bring anger to the world. And in the end, besides the hail that they're going to get, in this world, Hashem will make sure that they will fall in the hand of the wicked people that they complimented so much. And if not you, your son will fall in his hand. Why? Measure for measure. You build him up, you complimented him, you told people he's reliable, he's good, don't worry, you're going to fall in his hand. One day will turn around and stab you in the back. And look in politics how many times it happened. So, there was a there was a guy, Ger Tzedek, his name was Agriphas, he was a king. Agriphas, he was a from a family of Hordos, Herods. Herods fixed the second Bet HaMikdash. The Gemara says someone who did not see the building that Herods made did not ever see beauty, like glory. It was like the nicest building in the whole world. And uh, you know, one of his grandchildren, his name was Agriphas, and he he was a convert, and when they came in the Parashat Shavua to the verse, you should not nominate a king, a king, you know, that is not originally a Jew, meaning from was born a Jew, is a stranger from another nation. He started to cry. It was a good goy, I mean ger, not goy. He became a Jew. So he was a good person. So when he saw that. The Torah says that you're not allowed to make a king unless if someone that was born Jewish. Just like in America, you cannot nominate someone to be the president unless he was born in America. Right? Just because he has an American passport is not good enough. He needs to be born in America. Someone who came from another country and became became an American citizen, he cannot be a president. So, Agrippa started to cry because he's, he realized that it's not kosher that he's a king; it's not allowed. The Jews came to him and said, "Don't worry, Agrippa, you are our brother. Why? Because his mother was Jewish, so he wasn't even a girl. he was a Jewish from birth. His father was a goy. That time, all of them had a death sentence in Shammai. All the people that came to him and said to him, don't worry, you are a brother. And from that day, many people started to die. Right? And by the way, Rabbi he wasn't a bad person. But it was against the Torah to nominate him to be the king. And when he started to cry, when he started to cry, they told him, "Ah, don't worry, you are one of us. Here is a perfect example how we should never mix the heart and our emotions and our feelings to go against what the Torah instructed us. Most of the things and the mistakes that we do is from emotions, it's because of the heart. You feel bad for someone, so you do the wrong thing. For instance, if you have an idol worshiper friend, Bow down to his stupid gatchkes all these idols. And now he says to you, I have a problem. I need a loan. You're allowed to give him a loan? You're not allowed to give him a loan. Helping an idol worshipper in any way, making Hashem very angry. Why are you helping him? He's rebelling against me and you want to give him money? If you give him a gift, not a loan. Needless to say, even worse, imagine now, sometimes there's questions about going that convert to Judaism, and they have a very big dilemma, especially in Spanish countries. Many of the parents are very poor, Ecuador, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, There's a lot of poor old people. They used to be farmers, now they cannot work, who supports them, their children? Their children supports them. That's the mentality over there. What happened now? A, one of the Spanish Goim converted to Judaism. And he wants to continue to help his parents, but now he just realized his parents go every day to the Iglesia to bow down to Jose and Maria and J.C. Penny. Now he's thinking, my parents raised me I have to be grateful to them. On the other hand, if I give them money, they continue to worship idols and make God angry and make their punishment greater. So if I really love my biological parents, even though they're not my parents anymore, according to the Torah, but still, I look at them as my parents. If I really love them, I should not give them money. By helping them, for instance, if they don't have money, they won't have money for gas, or for bus, to go to the church. So because of me, they won't go to the idol-worshiping ceremony. So by avoiding them from getting the money, I'm actually helping them. But then on the other hand, it could be Chilul Hashem. What's the Chilul Hashem? The Goim would say, look at this guy. When he was a goy, he respected his parents, he gave his life for them. Now he became a Jew. Look what a cruel guy he became. Why? Because people judge from the heart, not from the brain. And even if you come to them and say, no, you're wrong. When he was a go, he himself was an idol worshipper. One idol worshipper helped the other. Especially if it's their parents. Now he became a righteous Jew. Who understand how much God hates the nonsense of what you're doing in your churches. And he doesn't want anything to do with that. But that's a very hard question. Question like this, you cannot decide on your own. You have to go to a big rabbi, as you are now a ger tzedek, put everything on the table, and he has to ask you a lot of questions and to reach a decision. Sometimes no matter what decision you reach in life is bad. So when you have many decisions, one worse than the other, what decision you have to do? The one that is less bad than all the other ones. When you don't know what to do in life, what do you do? Nothing. You stand still, wait. Why are you not going? I don't know if I'm allowed, not allowed, better not to move. Why? Because if I don't move, and I was supposed to go, so I didn't go. But I didn't do anything bad. I just didn't do something good I was supposed to do. But if I'm not supposed to go and I went, I actually committed a crime. So when I have a dilemma between taking a risk of committing a crime or not doing a good deed, better to stand still. By the way, I want to ask you a question. Where does it say in the Torah that by not committing a good deed, it's also a sin? Maybe it's just a loss of a good deed and a loss of the reward. Do you understand the question or no? No, what do you think? You don't know. No, let's see.
1: There
0: is a clear verse for it. Shev says when you don't know what to do. But let's say now you have an obligation to do something and you're not doing it. If you don't do Korban Pesach, what's your punishment? Karet. Here is a perfect example. Since when, since when you give a Karet for not keeping a mitzvah, usually Karet is always going for committing a crime. Not practicing a good deed, mm-hmm. usually doesn't have a karet. The same thing. Brit Mila, the same thing. Very good. If a person did not do Brit Mila, it's also karet. All I wanted is one proof. You just gave me two. Pesach, you're right. If you mezid, Pesach you can fix. If you're impure or this, you can do pesarsheni. Before we finish. Ah. King Solomon said, Amar Shlomo, Ozen Shomat Tochat, Tochekot Bekev Hakamim Talin. King Solomon says something very, very, very interesting. A ear that listens to a lot of rebuke, criticism. You love that people tell you the truth in your face. You want your Rabbi to tell you strong critics, criticism. You want to hear what's wrong about you. You don't take it personally and start getting upset and making fights, you actually thank the person that rebuked you. Thank you for telling me. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. Wow. You helped me so much. Wow. Thanks to you. I'm going to put Filin in the right place from now on. Wow. I didn't know about Shabbat. And I'm not allowed to use it on Shabbat. Someone that loves Musar and rebuke tochicha, what will be his end? What will be his end? Bekerev Chachamim Talin. This person, where does he belong? Among the best, biggest scholars. Why? Because if you love people to rebuke you, or when you hear a class and right away what the rabbi spoke, you know that you're doing wrong. And you're going to fix and fix and fix and fix. Eventually you'll be a Chacham. Because, you know, when you hear the Chacham speak about Bitul Torah, you improve your learning, you learn more. When he speaks about Lashon you stop speaking Lashon HaRa, when he speaks about all the things. So over the years, you become such a high level person where are you going to be, you cannot be with ordinary people. You have to be among the Chachamim. There's no other way. It's very simple. Simple common sense. But of course, from the smartest person ever lived. You know, there was a small city somewhere in the world with a Jewish community, small Jewish community, that they, you know, make a living from each other. One is a milkman, one is a baker, they exchange. He gives him bread, he gives him me, me, me butter. One time the baker felt that there is less butter than usual. He put the butter on a, on a scale, and it was only 800 grams for one kilo of bread. They used to, to exchange kilo for kilo. He went to the chalban, to the milkman, and he complained. He said, "I gave him exactly a ki- I gave you exactly a kilo." After, you know, they went to Beddin. The beddin said, in Beddin, he said, "Every time I get the bread, whatever he gives me, I put it on a scale. And I put the butter on the other side, and I match. What do you think I know? I, whatever bread he gives me, I match. They give him the same exact thing for the, for the, for the bread. That's what we agree, Kilo for Kilo. (laughs) This is the way we are. We can only see the negative in the other, but we don't see that we are actually worse. Or just as bad. Either we are worse, or we are just as bad. Right? Someone that disrespect you makes you very upset, but you don't see that you disrespect him. Someone that uses your stuff without permission, you're getting very angry, but you do the same thing to him. Someone who did, you know, everything that you complain that he does to you, in reality, you do to him or to others. I told you once a story that one guy came to me and said, I, I don't know if I can stand this yeshiva. I have a guy here that I can stand him every day. I, I violate the rules of the Torah. Lotis tisna Bil bilvavcha. And I asked him, why you hate him? He said, because he sits on my bed. We have bunk beds. I'm in the bottom, and he comes to speak to my friend, to my roommate. There's no chair, so he sits on my bed, the bottom bed, after I fix it. And, this. and I asked him a few times, I don't like that you sit on my bed. Bring your own chair. Or sit on his bed. But he wants to sit face to face with his friend. So he sits on the bed here, and he sits on, on my bed. So I told him, let me ask you a question, when you go to other rooms, to speak to friends, do you sit on one of the beds there, or you never sit on a bed? say, <laughs> so, yeah, I sit. I say, so I don't understand. You yourself understand that when you go to someone's rooms, it's hard to stand now for an hour. And if the only way is to sit on a bed, sit on a bed, what's the big deal? So you don't see that it's a problem when you do it. Why it bothers you so much when he does it? This is how a person is. If a person has to judge himself, he finds all the reasons in the world to be lenient. For the same exact thing, to judge someone else, he finds all the reasons in the world to be more more extreme, more strict. That's what the Gemara says, A person doesn't see his negative, but he's very good in seeing other people negative. So conclusion, to be judgmental, you must be every second of your life, otherwise you will end up dead. You have to be careful, and by the way, all the people that say don't be judgmental, every one of them is judgmental. Right? Democrats. They hate Republicans. They don't want to let them speak. They are very judgmental of them. So why are they giving us speeches? Secular people judgmental against religious. But when a religious person is judgmental against a secular, they get angry. Why is so judgmental? But you are very judgmental. Every religious person that comes, you look at him as a threat immediately you take actions against him before he's going to settle here. Right away, complaints, this, problems, fear, demonstrations, that's not judgment. That's also, governments are judgmental to the citizen. Right? Otherwise yeah. they will not audit anyone. Why you audit a person? If it's a random audit, it's a computer pickup. But if they check the tax return and they audit you, that means they suspect you. Why? As being judgmental, same officer probably is a lib. When someone will judge judge him in a society, meaning one of his friends, say, "Oh, you're so judgmental," and what is your job, from morning to night, you're judgmental. A defense lawyer will tell the prosecutor, "Why are you so aggressive? Why are you so judgmental? Why do you wanna bury my client?" When he will act as a prosecutor, he will do even worse. Except high scholar people that know what's right and what's wrong. When to be strict, when to be lenient. Most people don't learn. That's why they don't know. If you would learn, you would know. If you don't learn, there's no chance for you to know. I want to, if we already have a little time left, I want to refresh your memory about some of the chumrot that people do. And I want to tell you what Chazal say about chumrot. I don't want you to think that it's my opinion. Right? So, let me read it to you. The Gemara say, the Midracham, someone who knows a lot of Torah, Asharui b'Taanit lechinam. It chose too fast. She'en erech le'taanito, like Rashi writes, eno moilo. Someone is a Midracham, he decides today to fast. It's not Yom Kippur. It's not Tisha B'av. Today, Tuesday. He decides to fast. Why is he fasting? Because he feels maybe he made some, you know, things that are not hundred percent. And he wants to repent. The problem is that if he fasts, he cannot learn his good Torah. The brain doesn't work, you know, it's hard to concentrate. So the fast <coughs> to ordinary people that don't learn Torah will help them. It's a good repentance. But someone that, because of the fasting, will learn 10%, 20% less in time and quality, lost more than he gained. is ask him to do a humra, and in reality, he lost more than he gained. That's a perfect example of a foolish chumrah. I'll give you another example. <coughs> Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zatzal, the posek of America, wrote, Igrot Moshe, Yoreh De'ah, Gimel, right there you can see it. This is what he wrote. In its modesty, that if it's very hot, like in New York, hot and humid of the summer, 90something, humidity is high. and a person feel suffering with long clothes that to begin with, to wear such clothes, it's Midat It's no obligation to wear the long coat and long this and long that and a jacket and you don't have this obligation is not obligated. He can count on Hashem, and Hashem see how much he suffers. If he wear only white shirt without now the jacket and the, the thing, right? It's no problem at all. Why? Because if he wants to suffer more just because that's the custom to dress like this. So what if I suffer more? He thinks at least I'm gonna get a reward for doing it for midat that Rav Moshe Feinstein say even that you don't get. Ve'lika bezev midat is suffering. Rav Zilvershtein said that he heard from Rav Chaim Kaniewski One person came to the Chazonish and he told him that it's very hard for him to wear a tie on Shabbat because of the heat in Israel, in Bnei Brak. It's 100 degrees with 100% humidity. The Chazonish told him if there is no pleasure, there is no Kvot Shabbat. If you suffer, if the clothes make you suffer, so now let's not jump to the wrong conclusion. You have to dress... Properly and respectfully
1: and
0: you Yes, you don't walk with shorts now and short sleeves, and you know you come to synagogue like this. obviously you walk on a street like this. However, let's say you can walk with a nice, elegant shirt, and the button is open. But everybody likes to wear ties in your community, but the tie choke you, and because of that, you drip sweat and you suffer. And you say, okay, now I'm going to take off the tie. I will lower in my respect for Shabbat. The Chazonish told him no. Because if this Sidur makes you suffer, it ruins Shabbat. If there is suffering, I want to read it word by word. I don't want to change from the word of the Chazonish. If there is no enjoying, no pleasure, end quote Shabbat. The Shla Kadosh, the holy of Orvitz 500 years ago, it was in the time of the Aria Kadosh in Sfat, in the book of Toldot Adam, right? It says like this Yesh Dat, we should know, the extra strict things that we choose to do, Loti hem Lanu. Heim sheifot chazonenu Do not think that that's the main thing. It's not our purpose. To look, to look all the time, how can I be extra strict? By the way, I found through the years that people that want to be extra, extra strict more than anyone around them, that usually come from a lot of pride. Pride and arrogance. There was the, the, the big Saba Mikkelem, that He saw one student in his yeshiva started to accept Shabbat one hour before the time. Let's see, Shabbat started at seven. At six, is for him, Shabbat already. They said, this is not such a great learner, this guy, that he will be such a strict uh, Shabbat an hour earlier. So he called him to his room. And he said to him, you know, I'm very impressed from your Khumra of Shabbos. Shabbos is so holy. It's so nice that somebody finally figured it out, that it's nice to do something for Hashem, a little bit extra, not just to stick to the rule. You can do a little more. What's gonna be? I'm so disappointed from everyone else around here. How did they not learn from you to accept Shabbat an hour earlier. Don't you think? Yes, Rebbe. I don't understand the people over here. Now one person cares about Shabbat? Who am I? They, They should have been better than me. Right now, I commend you to stop with what you do. Accept Shabbat two minutes before. What? You just gave me the compliments that I'm the best. I was testing you, you fool. Doing something extra that is not required by law and as a result of that, looking at everyone else that followed the law as sinners or criminals, make you the criminal. Did you understand what I say? Sometimes, for instance, that's a perfect example. If you're going to have a guy that decides to cover all the walls in his house with tinfoil and Pesach, is it required by halacha? Absolutely not. Big Chachamim would come to someone's house like this, they would not know if to laugh or to cry. But he decided to be extra, extra, extra extreme. Tov. Zekhuto. You want to be machmir? Machmir to yourself. It's your money, it's your time, okay. Now he comes to his brother's house, walks in on Pesach, oh, shagets. My brother became a shagets. Why? He doesn't cover the walls with, uh, with tinfoil. Now, from now on, he doesn't want his kids to go play with his brother's kids. We want to go to play with our cousin. No, don't go there. No, not good. It's not good influence. Why? One day you also won't cover the walls with tinfoil. Do you understand, Rabotai? Sinat chinam, conflict, problem, lashon hara, all of that came from what? From some inventions that someone made up. i give you thousands of examples like this. What's required by halacha, or even it's machlok aposki, meaning one say loud, one say not aloud. Everyone that is, is, uh, is more strict, machmir. It's beautiful, tavo alav bracha. You go by your rabbi that is not machmir, fine. But you cannot make fun at him that is machmir. That's actually a good sign, you know. And it by the way, it's not going by. It is a huge mistake among the the people. It doesn't go sfaradi, ashkenazi, Hasid, litai, and the rest of their nonsense. The halacha is not determined based on your nationality. If you came from Poland or Russia, or you came from Iraq or Persia, the halacha comes from the Talmud and from the Gemara and from the Chumash, and from the Nevi'im and eventually Shulchan Aruch. It, the halacha does not determine based on where you came from. It's stuyot. If we have an argument now, <coughs> if you're allowed to open bottles on Shabbat or not, because you detach the ring here. What does it have to do if you are or Ashkenazi? There are two claims in halacha. It's not relevant what the Ashkenazi say and what the Sfaradi say. If one of the two, Sfaradi or Ashkenazi, say that it's not allowed and it's the karet, Yeresh should be afraid to do it. Even though the other rabbi allow it. That's a question for the Ashkenazim. The Ashkenazim followed the Ramah. Sfaradim follow Rabbi Yosef Karo in Shulchan Aruch. He said that meat has to be Bet Yosef, meaning that the long of the cow has to be completely smooth naturally. The Ashkenazim say, if it's not smooth naturally, you can make it smooth with your finger. Because the long of the cow has like, like little veins, ririot. It's like lines on it, if you press gently on it, you can smooth it, because it's a soft thing. You can like, it's like removing it, you have to be careful not to make a hole, because if you make a hole, you make a hole in a long, you make the animal, <coughs> the animal has a problem. So, it's an argument, what does it mean, halak? The long must be smooth. The question is, does it require it to be naturally smooth with no interference? Or that if you see those things, you can smooth it with your finger and it's fine. That's the argument. According to the Shulchan Aruch, it has to be naturally smooth, and that's how the Sfaradim follow. That's what you seek. Bet Yosef, when you go to the butcher shop, you say Bet Yosef, that means the the highest level. Because there's no question about it. Even Ashkenazim admit, that something that is smooth, naturally, is better than something that you made smooth with your finger. There's no question about it. So according to all opinion, naturally smooth is for sure kosher. But the Ashkenazi way, meaning glat kosher, not Bet Yosef, according to Sfaradim, is not kosher. So now there is two opinions here. The meat, according to everyone, is chalak, naturally. The Ashkenazi meat, what we call glad kosher, according to the Ramah, it's kosher, according to the Rabbi Yosef Karo, it's taref. Taref gamur. So what do you do? So you think, if I was Ashkenazi, how would I dare to touch a meat that according to the writer of the Shulchan Aruch is taref? I would die and not eat it. On the other hand, you see the biggest Ashkenazi rabbis in the world eat glad kosher meat with no fear. Oh, so the question is, what are they gonna say? I, d- I did what my rabbi told me. Who is my rabbi? The Ashkenazi chief rabbi of those days, the rama So I have who to count on. The question is, when someone did that, do you think Hashem will tell him no problem? Or Hashem will ask him, someone in your level, you were not afraid to eat a meat that according to a big doll, Olam, Rabbi Yosef Karo, it's You were not afraid? What will he answer? I'll tell you what he will answer. The Torah told us they have to follow the majority. That's the Torah. So, when you have a doubt, 50-50, it's kosher or not kosher? 50% kosher, 50% not kosher. You don't know. You don't know. So when you have one doubt, it's 50-50. You have to go to the, ex- the slick side. What happens if you have two doubts? It's, it's, it's two doubts. It becomes 75 against 25. That's a majority. Let me explain. When you go to a house of Ashkenazi? dick. He buys meat, Boropark, Flatbush. Well, the Ashkenazim buy their meat. Glad kosher, good okay, good ashgacha. The Ashkenazim don't separate the Bet Yosef for themselves. Everything smooth naturally and smooth with the finger, all goes together in one batch. Because for them it's all kosher. For Sfaradim, they separate Bet Yosef in some places. But if now you came to the house of Ashkenazim, not to the store, if you come to the store, buy the Bet Yosef. But if you now a guest by the house of Ashkenazi, and he gave you the meat, this meat now it's considered glad right? kasher. It, it doesn't have a sticker Bet Yosef on it. So you have one doubt who was right, Rabbi Yosef Karo or the Rama? Okay. But this meat, because the Ashkenazi mix everything together, there is a chance that it's Bet Yosef. Because it all goes together. For them, it's not afkamina, completely smooth, or you made it smooth with a finger. It's all kosher for us, so everything goes to glad kasher. And since he bought it in a butcher shop, maybe this came from a cow that had a perfectly smooth loin. So, since you have two doubts, even if you say that the Rabbi Yosef Karo is right but maybe this animal is Bet Yosef naturally. So because you have two doubts, it makes it 75 against 25. So these Ashkenazim, when they go to Shamaim, if Hashem say, how come you are not afraid that Rabbi Yosef Kao said that it's Taref? So you would answer. Well, one answer is that, uh, first of all, it's Machloket of Tugdole Olam, 50-50. Second doubt make it 75-25. Maybe that particular meat came from a smooth long. So automatically, I follow what you got said in the Torah to follow the majority. That's why Rav Ovadia Yosef brings in Yabi Omer an answer about the Sfaradi that it's by Ashkenazim. That you can count on those two doubts and eat their meat. Why? Because the affects sfeka Plus, over here, it's going to be awkward. You can be a Baal Tshuva. You can be a Baal Tshuva going to the house of a big Ashkenazi rabbi that does Kiruv and brings you to his house. You're only two months in Yeshiva. You don't know that much. I told you, not Bet yourself Taref. You ask the, this big Ashkenazi Chacham, tell me this meat is Bet yourself? No, we buy glad kosher. Oh, I know not to eat it. It's Taref. It's a big embarrassment. We a big embarrassment. It happened to my friend. We'll finish with that story. My friend, he became Baal like 35 years ago. And he one time, when he was a new Baal tshuva, he doesn't know. Baal goes by what people tell him. The problem is not, not everything they tell you is 100% correct. So they, one person, I guess, Hasidish, told him, don't Touch wine that has Ashgacha or you. Don't count on you. It's liberals. It's moderns. Make sure only chassidish ashgachah. What does he know? He's tshuva chadash. Came to you, of tshuva. So he was invited to do kiddush in someone's house. So they gave him the baredel to do kiddush. So he looks at the baredel like this and started, you know, do you have a different wine? They asked him, why? What's the problem? He said, well, they told me that this Ashgacha is not good. Which Ashgacha? This. They, they started to see how everyone is shocked. I don't know if what happened. I don't remember if they gave him a different wine or they told him we don't have a different wine. But what happened in the end, that person that he was eating by was a mashgiach of the Oyu. <laughs> no. Or the head of the Oyu, one of the two. I don't remember this. He told me that story four years ago. Either he was the head... Yeah, now I remember. He was the head of the Oyu, 35 years ago. I don't know who he was, but this is what he told me. He said, El Al tishal a bushot hayali. I'm in the house of the head of the OU, and I check like this, like an idiot. And I say to him, no, <laughs> what did I know from my life? So that's what happened, you know, sometimes when you don't know and you make up things. By the way, you should know one more thing. Today we are very strict with wine. And we, we're not going to drink wine from the goyim. And we do not buy wine that Mechalel Shabbat touched. And the Hasidim don't buy wine that Mechalel Shabbat looked at it. Forget touch or opened. They make sure to get all the bottles in the box. Because if it, or they cover it with tinfoil if they have someone that is not Shomer Shabbat coming to eat. This is extra, extra chumrot. The halacha is that you're not allowed to drink wine that is not mevushal. If it's the mevushal wine, it's like soup. It's no problem. Even Mechalel Shabbat touched it, even a goy touched it, because it's written on a bottle, Mevushal, you can drink it. But if it's a good wine, good quality, which is not Mevushal, you have to make sure that not a, a goy didn't touch it and not a Jew that is Mechalel Shabbat. If, if after you open the as long as the bottle is sealed, it doesn't matter who touched it. A goy put it in the shelves, in the stores, it doesn't matter because it's sealed. It only a problem after the bottle was opened. Once the bottle was opened, if a guy shook it, if a goy just touched it with a finger while he was on the shelf, it's no problem. If he shook it, or a Mechalel Shabbat, Jew that is not Shomer Shabbat who counts 100% like a goy in Halacha, also shook it, the wine is not kosher anymore. Pasul, can use it. Why? It became Ya'i nasech. Why is it? Because the goyim used to take the wine and use it for their altar of their idols. They have a big idol, like the Indians and the Buddhists, and they take wine and they spill it on a mizbeach, right? So let's say today you have a factory here in Los Angeles of wine. The goyim over there that do the wine. It's a non-kosher wine, regular wine, American wine. This goyim, let's say, even if they are Christian, when they go to the church, did you ever see in a church that they spill wine and they have to... Yep. They do? They know that maybe in India it's dangerous, or I don't know, in Japan, I don't know, those kind of places, yes. But here, in America, when you have regular goyim, or Muslim goyim, or, or, or Christian goyim, do they use really this wine uh, for an altar? No, it's not the but we are extra strict for the one in a million chance that maybe it is. So, we are with wine. We are strict with meat. We also extra strict. But what happens in reality? In reality, if this is a wine that was made by a goy, and this goy is not an idol worshiper, some atheist doesn't go to church, doesn't go, to, doesn't believe in any god. Technically that wine is not a problem. What is wine? Grapes that someone squeezed. Because we don't know who is the goyim and what they believe in and what kind of idol worshiping they do. And plus we have no permission to change the law. Even if the reality changed, that today the goyim of America do not use the wine for Avodah Zarah, we are not allowed to change the of two thousand years already in the old days when they wrote the gemara goyim had barrels of oil of um, wine just for the avodah zara. they make it for the avodah zara dedicated if you drink from it it's yayin and since a jew that is not shomer shabbat count 100 like a goy even though you know that the jew that is not shomer shabbat for sure, will not use this wine for any Avodah Zara. You are just comparing to a goy because he doesn't keep the covenant with Hashem. But because we gave him a status of a goy, he's going 100% in everything, not in some things, yes, some things, no. And since the goyim are menasrim Avodah Zara, the Mechalele Shabbat are like them, and we're not allowed to drink their wine if they touched it. But you see, this is a way of something that we are extra strict even though it's not so necessary today, especially here in America, but we do not change. Why? If we're going to start cutting all the halachot, after two generations we're going to be like the Reform. That's how they marry men with men. That's how they marry Jews with goyim. Why? They started to cut. Ah, that's not relevant. That's not relevant. This, this change, that change, this we can do, this week, after 200 years, nothing is left from them. They don't keep one mitzvah. So we, for instance, to preparing medicine on Shabbat. You're not allowed to take medicine on Shabbat. Why? Because in the old days, they used to prepare the medicine on the spot. They take leaves, this, grind it, put on oil, heat it, doing all kinds of things. Some emanim, spices, this, garlic, kamun, uh, cumin, this, they mix and they give people for, they knew the, 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 the pharmacist of those days, it was all natural, not chemical. So, because if somebody was sick, they prepared for him the medicine on Shabbat and it would lead to breaking Shabbat, you're not allowed to use medicine on Shabbat. But today, when you take pills from from the shelf, in your house and take it for the headache or for whatever, who is going to prepare medicine on Shabbat? No one. Today anyone will prepare medicine on Shabbat? Do you know any human being that prepare medicine in his house? No, you buy it in a pharmacy. So this rule is completely not relevant, but we're not allowed to change it. Why we're not allowed to change it? Why? It's better that a person will suffer with pain the whole Shabbat than just take a pill or not? The answer is, why are not allowed? Because if you allow people to start judging what's relevant and what's re- not relevant, give it two generations, nothing will be left. Nothing will be left. So, and it's obvious, you see right away, when soon as people begin to cut, you already know where it's going to end. Plus, Every rabbinical decree that the Chachamim made has how many reasons? Do you know? You're not going to believe it. More than a thousand reasons. One thousand and five reasons hidden. You only know that in the old days they used to prepare medicine on Shabbat and you don't want people to break Shabbat. But there are so many other secrets that the Chachamim never told you. So you may say, oh, that's not relevant, so we can, pre- we can take medicine on Shabbat. But there's other reasons that you don't know. It could be Kabbalistic reasons, could be things that are hidden. We have no way to know. Because we don't know all the secrets, we are not allowed 2,000 years later to cancel their decrees. And the chachamim make sure that no one would be able to cancel their decrees. How did they make sure? Who knows? The Chachamim made a rule, based on what the Torah permit them, to make rules. One of the rules they made is that to cancel a decree of a bedin, you have to be greater, to be greater in numbers and in quality, which will never happen. Because every generation is lower quality than the generation before. You understand? Liot How can they be more minyan? The maximum you can have is seventy-one. You cannot add more than seventy-one. So if 71 Chachamim made a decree, today you cannot you cannot have more than that and definitely each Chacham is nothing compared to the Chachamim of those days. So, in order for you to be able to cancel these the previous laws, you have to be greater in number and greater in quality, which will never happen. I just have a kushia. Maybe I give you that as a homework. I give you a homework to think about. What's the homework? Why didn't just say you're not allowed to? cancel any decree under any circumstances. Why did they use such language to in order for Bedding to cancel a previous ruling, you have to be greater in quality and in quantity. And they knew that this, something like this can never happen because every generation is lower, not higher. So what is the point of saying it? If it can never happen in reality? Why not just to say no one is allowed to change anything? Regardless, relevant, not relevant, make a rule, that's it, for life. Second question is that there are rules that were actually cancelled by later beddings. That's
1: the
0: second question, it doesn't cancel the first question. First question is the Chachamim. Why did they use such a language and not just say, "You're not allowed to contradict anything we ruled." Finished. That's it. The Torah gave us the authority. We ruled it. Finished. Yes. The question is how the, the later Beddin, hundreds of years later, cancel some of the things that were made by Kadmonim. Uh, If you remind me, if you remind me, I will start my next lecture with giving you proofs what decrees were cancelled by other Batedinin. I have a list here. I have a list. But if I start it now, it's going to be another hour. But it's very interesting. The question is why, why even though it's the rule not to touch, not to play with, certain... there was some exception to the rule. And there's reasons for it. It's deep. The Koach Nefesh obviously it's cancel everything even things from the Torah not from Chachamim. It's needless to say that it's cancel what the Chachamim.
1: Maybe, maybe the Chachamim realize that the tradition is going down. They don't have the same level that they had for the whole from two thousand years ago. If they were not cancel
0: this, they, they going go completely. <laughs> one of the reason is shh, one of the reason is that if the public cannot handle such a decree. Nobody can handle it. If you decree on the public something that you see nobody can tolerate this decree. Everyone suffers from it. Then you find retroactive that to begin with this gzera should have never been made. i give you one example. Ezra Ezra was like a second Moshe Rabenu. Ezra is one of the most important people in the history of the world. Ezra said that every time a man is with his wife after the seed comes out of his body, is impure. So he has to go to the mikveh immediately if he wants to pray and you know to do holy things. He must go to the mikveh. The problem is that the mikveh over there was not a twenty million dollar mikveh in Ocean Parkway, you know, with important marble and heat and hot towels and hot water. It, was exi- it wasn't exactly the case. So 23, 2200 years ago, if you, was with, if you were with your wife, there was no electric. You were in a dark place with some candles, in a freezing weather of the winter of Israel. Wind outside and rain or snow in Tzfat. And now you have to go to a natural mikveh, which is some kind of a tunnel or mikveh of the Ari, which is called round. imagine in a winter. Oh, you have to go to the ocean, or you have to go to a lake, or you have to go to the Kinneret. it's freezing water. And you have to sometimes break the ice in Europe. So you have to go, now, if you want to be with your wife, you're already thinking about the suffering you're going to have after that. And because of that, you don't want to have relationship. They started to see that nobody touched their wives. They destroyed the Shalom B'ayt. No intimacy. But to sign an ketubah that's your obligation as a man. Obligation? Well, every time I wanna make her happy, I'm gonna go and freeze in a kineret in the winter, come out of the water and shake, and didn't have the towels like we have. It was a different world. So they started to see that nobody got nobody nobody has kids anymore. Nobody's born. And they canceled that decree. Why? Because that decree to begin with. Mm-hmm was for holy people, this can the extreme question. holy people, that would still do what they they required by the Ketubah, and still go to the cold water.
1: This can answer the question, the first question, why did they say we can't change it no matter what? If they would say that, then, then it stop. But they would say they can't change but it. But let me,
0: not me not. ask you a question. If the Chachamim would say you cannot cancel no matter what, did they have to cancel the Gzera of Ezra Sofer? Yes or no? It would bring to the destruction of the generation. I'll tell you something. Let me give you an example. You know the Syrian community, they don't accept converts. I think 80, 90 years ago they had a bad that ruled that in their communities in the world they are not allowed to accept converts. Okay, now, a Torah say. One of the, the one of the reasons that Baruch Baruchu spread the Jews in all the countries is to add more converts to the Jewish nation, meaning to show the world the truth and bring kosher goyim to convert. So it's mitzvah to convert. Once the goy converted, if he's a real goy, a, a real ger, you have thirty six requirements in the Torah to love him, not to deceive him, to help him, not to torture him, ah, respect him unbelievable 36 things in the Torah about the converts. How much to love them, to help them, not to hurt them, not, you know. So how can a Bed Deen for 80, 90 years ago can come and rule something against the Torah and against the Gemara? That's the question. Reality today, the only community that survived with almost no assimilation is the Syrian community. You go to every country, you go to Brazil, almost all the Ashkenazi marry to goyim. Goyim, goyim, not gerim. You go in other places, all other communities had big assimilation. By them, every Syrian boy and girl knew I don't have an option to convert the goya. So there's no point of even talking to her. There's no point of taking her to dinner or buying her drink. What is the point? She can never be my wife. No one will accept me. I will not be able to put my kids in yeshivot. Therefore, nobody even looked towards the the goyim. That's why the community stay without interference from outside. So now, after so many years, it's actually one of the most brilliant decisions a Bedin made in the last hundred years anywhere. (laughs) He'd save the community from a destruction. So the question is, but it still goes against the Torah. That's the exact thing that Hashem said to the Chachamim, that in every generation and generation, you have to evaluate the situation and make decrees based on what's happening. In the Torah, there's no restriction for a boy and a girl to be in an isolated room, even all day, even all week. There's no restriction from the Torah. Isur You're allowed to be with a woman. You're just not allowed to touch her. She's not your wife. But 300 years after the Torah, David Amelech, King David, and his beddin saw that it created problems. People are not holy as they used to be 300 years ago, when the Torah was given. They made a decree that you're not allowed to lock yourself in a room with a woman. That is not your wife. Why did they make a decree? The Torah allows it. We have to be extra careful. When the Torah allowed, people were very holy. No one would dare to touch a girl that is not his wife. To even look at her. 300 years later, David HaMelech saw that things begin to happen. They made a decree that is 3,000 years old. Today, you lock yourself with a woman, you lock the door, you close the blind. Already it's a sin. Even if you didn't touch her. Even if you didn't look at her. You were standing in a corner learning Gemara. The fact that you were in there... You come to your friend's house, his wife is there. You knock on the door, I, I came to uh, Moshe home, he's gonna come in 10 minutes. He's so on no, the way, he's running late. He's running late, wait, wait. So now, if you go in and she closes the door and the door is locked, if it's a door that you can open from outside, especially when a husband is in town, it's allowed but it doesn't look good. Once there's no way to come inside, unless someone knocks on the door and you have to go and open the door, and nobody can see inside, there's no windows, nothing. Being over there with her alone, it's already a sin. And thousands of homes were destroyed from this sin alone. That a person sat and drank coffee, can I give you tea, can I give you coffee? That's how it starts. Even the Arabs understand that no Arab will enter, Mustafa will not enter the house of Mahmoud when his wife is there and Mahmoud is not home. Hi, when in, when in Mahmoud? Mahmoud is uh, in hell. He shot a few Israelis today. Ah, okay, if he's hell, I'm allowed to enter. But if he's still alive, I wait outside. You understand? Now I'm going to tell you something that the Arabs, all the Arabs that I saw in Israel, have a habit. They like their Turkish coffee, very strong, without sugar. If they want, i sugar, Ahmed, no sugar. But after that, they drink a whole bottle like this, one liter of coke in one shot, which is 20 spoons of sugar. In the beginning, I thought they want to stay healthy. <laughs> Nothing to do with health. They just like the coffee there. But they eat, they drink cola all day. Cola is all sugar, you know. It's an it, addiction. Some people say that even uh, Coke Zero, it's also fattening. How can it be fattening? It doesn't have sugar. But the brain thinks it's sugar, because it's sweet. And the brain translates it as accepting sugar. It's very interesting. It doesn't make sense to me. But I once read an article that people that drink diet coke gain more weight than people that drink regular coke. Both of them is extreme poison. Regular coke and diet coke. I asked somebody, how can it be? He said, because they drink diet, they they eat a lot more. Because they think at least I'm not gaining weight from soda. Yeah.
1: Increase,
0: the Increase the appetite. Not to talk about all the chemicals over there and the cancer that it causes. Let's go back to natural water seltzer. Seltzer, if you want. Fine, that's it. Or natural juices from time to time. Orange juice. juice. Tomato juice. You don't need sugar. If you already drink sugar, natural sugar, that are shemade. Some say that if you drink grape juice and all these sweet juices, it's also bad for diabetics. Even though it's natural. Some say no, natural sugar, it's even good. I don't know who to believe. One doctor says it's this is good. One doctor told me watermelon, it's very bad. If you pre-diabetic, Watermelon is full of sugar. The other doctor told me, "Oh, watermelon is not so bad because it's almost all water, but stay away from grapes and mango. That's all sugar." But watermelon, good or bad? Everything
1: is good.
0: but Hashem. Top. Mezrat Hashem. We'll see you next week. Baruch Adonai Amen and